God damn it. What the hell? If the Bible's got you tied in knots, if you're burdened with religious thoughts, come grab a drink and join the choir. It's Heretic Happy Hour. Well, hello, everyone. You know, we really are so very happy that you have joined us for this episode of the Heretic Happy Hour podcast because we are in the middle of our brand new series, Reconstruction. It's a Reconstruction series. Um, And um, yeah, so this is our third episode in the series and uh, it's going to be a blast. So uh, I'm Keith Giles and I'm the author of several books in the Jesus Un series and uh, I'm joined by my co-hosts, Matt and Katie and Derek, and I would love for them to introduce themselves to you at this time. I would love to introduce myself. Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Valentine. I'm the author of Sex, Slavery, and Self-Control. And on the topic of reconstruction, I know a question I get all the time, all the time, is can I find a church that will work for me? And I'm going to be teaching a class with an amazing colleague on that in January. We'll give you the link in the show notes. So anyone that wants to find the ideal church for you, and this is really specific to your theology, to your needs. Um, I'll be teaching you how to do that, how to read in between all the church code lines, and how to set yourself up for success so you're not in the middle of another toxic church that will burn you in six months, but set set you up in one that will um, serve you and help help you find fulfilling spiritual life for the next couple of years or more. And that brings it to me. I'm Derek Day. I'm the author of Deconstructing Religion and the host also of the Forward Podcast. Uh, I am a triple zero agent in Her Majesty's Secret Service in that I am licensed to be an asshole. <laughs> can I can I ask where you got that license? Her Majesty's Secret Service. Oh, oh yeah. okay. All right. Well, congratulations. Yeah. Can you certify others? I I believe that I could. I believe that I could I could extend my my license to others. Mm. Yes. Mm. All right. Well, I'll send you an email then. Uh, that makes me Matt DeStefano. And I, I, I have an announcement, friends, if you would bear with me. And no, it's not that we have a hotline. Derek's going to get to that. But I am back on Patheos thanks to my boy, Keith Giles. So thank you, Keith. Oh, yeah. Happy to help. Yes. Woo-hoo! Yes. So I am back blogging on Patheos at All Set Free again. So I'm excited for that. I'm also excited for another episode of the Heretic Happy Hour. And I am excited about that hotline that Derek's going to tell you about. Damn right. If you want to get in touch with the Heretic Happy Hour, you can do so by exercising finger dexterity and dialing 240-343-7379. Once again, that's 240-343-7379. And it appears that we have a voicemail, so choir, roll that beautiful voicemail footage. Hey guys, it's uh, Nick, and uh, I've been listening to the podcast for, for some time, and just came came to realize that I don't think you've had my all-time favorite atheist on the show yet. You guys should get uh, Richard Dawkins at some point, you know? Maybe that could be a, a great way to, uh, I don't know, have a great conversation with some guy who's a great guy, it seems like, a great guy. Um, yeah, if you do, let me know, I, or I guess I will know, because I'll listen to the podcast. But thanks again. Have a great rest of your guys' day or podcast with this end of the plane. Bye. Yeah, I, I would personally love to get Richard Dawkins. Well, let's work on that. Okay. Anyone got any, if anyone has any connections, 
please call the hotline. Yeah. Well, maybe he's listening. Maybe, Mr. Dawkins, if you're listening right now, uh, we would love to have you on here Heretic Tick of the Week. Uh, Everyone tag him in whatever social media he's in. Right. Let him know to listen through this minute. That, That's right. Yeah, bring him on. I mean, we've had Bart Ehrman. I mean, I thought that was pretty cool. I love Bart Ehrman. I think we're theologically diverse enough to... I think so. Welcome, Richard Dawkins. Yeah, I think that would be a blast. I mean, here's the thing. I mean, um, uh, someone like Richard Dawkins would not be as much of a stretch, to be honest. I mean, a bigger stretch would be like, you know, MacArthur, you know, one of those guys, like like a real evangelical fundamentalist Calvinist something. That would probably be a harder conversation, at least. Um, But I think we could talk to an atheist probably and not have much trouble. Yeah, I agree. Are we all that's, settled? That's the, that's the irony. Isn't that the irony? Yeah, that is irony. Well, thank you for that, for that voicemail. I do. And actually, I would love for Nick, I would actually love to know what it is that you like, love about Richard Dawkins' work. What's, you know, what's appealing about that? I think that'd be really interesting. So write in and let us know. But so are we all settled? We'll, we'll have a uh, amenable atheist on the show at some point. Yeah, absolutely. I think it has to. It, it, I mean, I'm open to having anyone as a heretic of the week. I, I just think it should be. Um, I mean, someone like Dawkins would be great. You know what I mean? I mean, here's the thing. I know lots of atheists, but I don't think I want to give them time on the show. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> they're not all, not all atheists are created equal. Like, I want someone who's like really interesting and intelligent. We could have some really great conversations oh. and, you know, someone really, uh, you know. A thoughtful theological atheist. Yeah. Thank you. Well, my, my thing is that if, if they have the capability to move the theological needle, then I'm all with it. Uh, you know, that's where I am. I'm, I'm just, I don't, you know, somebody said something in, in the, um, in the group, in the Facebook group, and they said something about, um, that we were doing remodeling <laughs> and, and I was like, holy crap, you know, I don't want to do remodeling. I want to, I want to do controlled demolition. I mean, I, I, listen, <laughs> let's blow some shit up. What? Honestly. Why are you so violent, um, man? What is the deal? Like, you just want to destroy man, things. I'm, Listen, I'm 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 getting in touch with my inner '60s radical. All right. Well, I, I can relate to that. I understand that. Well, we'll we'll find the right atheist to have on. To uh, I would be curious what the different perspectives are because it's not something I spend a lot of time thinking about. But for a future episode, thank you for the recommendation. And what do y'all think? Are we ready to get to our heretic of the week? It's the heretic of the week. Hi. I'm Kristen Dumay, and I'm a heretic. Hi, Kristen. Welcome to the Heretic Happy Hour. We're so glad to have you as our Heretic of the Week. Um, we were talking before, you know, we hit, we jumped into the conversation here and about how um, your book kind of popped up on our radar. Um, but before we get into that, I just want to know, Kristen, why is it that anybody would consider you a heretic? Well, I wrote a book, uh, and if you are a fan of a militant patriarchal Christianity, then I am definitely your heretic. (laughs) Yeah. So your book is uh, really fascinating. Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. First of all, just props on that title. That is amazing. (laughs) Thank Um, you. So. Give, give us a little bit of a background on the book and, and why you decided to write it and why you took that particular uh, angle with the, with the Jesus and the John Wayne thing. 
So I'm a historian, and uh, it's essentially a, a history of white evangelical masculinity and militarism, tracing back 7,500 years. And uh, it's, I actually started writing this book long, or at least thinking about this book, not actually writing it, but started the research long before Trump was on our horizon as the president. Uh, going back years, I teach at a Christian university, and some of my students brought me a book about 15 years ago, almost 20 years ago now. It was John Eldridge's Wild at Heart. And they thought I needed to read it because it resonated with what I was teaching them in U.S. history about Teddy Roosevelt and how gender and masculinity is linked to American empire and violence and things like that. And they were right. Uh, so this is a Christian book on evangelical masculinity and uh, was extremely militant and mm -hmm. imperial. And um, right around that time, I was looking at white evangelicals supporting the Iraq war, supporting preemptive war, condoning torture. And I thought, I wonder how these things fit together. Yes. By the way, I'm so glad you brought up that book, Wild at Heart, because I had a very similar reaction to that book. I remember when it came out, uh, all of my male friends were like, oh, dude, you got to read this book, man. It makes so much sense. And, you know, this is why this is why men you know, typically aren't involved in, in uh, church so much because it's so girly and, and foo-foo and it kind of paints Jesus as this kind of kick-ass um, man, you know, masculine, kind of like typical masculine thing. And and I looked at this book and I was like, I, you know what I was tempted to do? I was tempted to write a book uh, uh, sort of in rebuttal called Mild at Heart <laughs> to, present, to present a more a more like what I believe is a more uh, historically and scripturally accurate picture of who Jesus really was. Yes. Um, maybe I'll have to do that one day. So I'm just glad you you brought that up. And it's funny that that was sort of what kind of got you aware of what's going on in uh, evangelical Christianity. And um, so yeah, so that yeah. kind of is what kind of got you started in looking at that direction. Yeah. So um, I, I took a look at that book and then there were many other books coming out right around that time in the early 2000s. Um, they were all essentially saying the same thing. It's very, very macho, militant Christian manhood. And what struck me is, you know, for all their talk of being Bible-believing Christians, these books on evangelical masculinity were filled not with, you know, Bible verses or biblical exegesis, but with Hollywood heroes, with these kind yep. of secular models of militant masculinity, people like Mel Gibson's William Wallace from the movie Braveheart, these kind of mythical warriors, and John Wayne just kept popping up. And I thought that was really interesting because as you suggest, you know, I think if you kind of model manhood after uh, say the fruits of the spirit, you aren't going to end up with this, you know, machismo. And so they had to go outside of a Christian tradition to find really manly men that they wanted to um, kind of model this militancy after. Right. Yeah. You, it's a, it's very much a stretch. Like you said, you have to willfully ignore pretty much everything Jesus taught about um, sort of uh, this masculine kind of picture. And then you have to go to things like, well, he was a carpenter. So he was probably ripped, you know, exactly. he ripped, right. Yeah. And, uh, it's just all conjecture. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, and, and of course he, you know, turned over the tables in the temple. So that's a favorite um, passage. Mm -hmm. And then really the book of revelation, it's really bloody. There's swords, there's right death and slaying of the enemies. And so so that that pops up in, in these narratives too. Right. And you get also around that time sort of the Mark Driscoll yeah. version of uh 
you know, I can't worship a God who that I can beat up, um, which was ironic because that's what we did to Jesus. <laughs> we did beat him up. And um, yeah. that, you know, he's got a tattoo on his leg. Exactly. And, uh, you know, he's committed to make someone bleed, which is missing the point that the blood on his robe is his own blood. <laughs> right, right. And so, I mean, Driscoll is just, you know, this kind of militant masculinity on steroids. But, but he really becomes... Uh, uh, a model for a lot of young evangelical pastors and just young evangelical men in the 2000s. But he's he's just like the next chapter in this longer story uh, that, that really stretches back at least to the 1960s and 1970s. But Driscoll is also a good example of uh, kind of how this, this ideal of testosterone-driven masculinity is linked up with kind of a submissive femininity and has real implications in terms of sexuality too. And, um, and that's something that I explore in the book. And, you know, Driscoll is very famous for his misogynistic sermons and, uh, you know, what he writes about sex. uh, And, and and that's very much a theme. He's not inventing anything new. There's a long tradition of that as well in these circles. Right. So number one, you know, your book, shines a light on this, uh, exposes that this is happening, that this isn't really uh, in line with who Jesus historically really was or scripturally who we see. Um, And then, but then you're also now tracing the thread of how sort of the fruit of this, right? So what does this lead to? What kind of Christianity, what kind of church does this create and expectations um, that then feed into the political side of things? And so talk about that a little bit. What did you find there? Yeah, this is a religious history and a political history and a cultural history. So it's really looking at popular culture, you know, what ordinary evangelicals are reading, what kind of sermons they're hearing, what kind of, you know, products they're buying and how they're living out their faith. Um, But it's also a political history. And this story of, of evangelical masculinity and militarism is very much linked up with politics and partisan politics with their move to Mm -hmm. the, the Republican party. Um, but it's it also traces, I think, this kind of um, uh, broader development of, um, and, and that gets at this this um, militancy uh, kind of. Uh, if you believe, like like Aldridge says, that God is a warrior God, and that men are made in His image, and that every man needs a battle to fight, uh, then it, you need enemies, right? You need to constantly have enemies that you have to gear up to fight, and so. One of the things that I found through my research is a lot of people kind of, you know, look at evangelicals and politics, especially in recent years and say, you know, they, they voted for Donald Trump or, you know, they became aggressive in this, in this way or that because they felt marginalized, they felt embattled and threatened. But when I looked to the history, uh, I saw time and again where, uh, evangelical leaders actively stoked fear among their followers in their own churches, in their own organizations, in order to enhance their own power. And then they would step in as the strong protector. And that was really how they consolidated their power. And that was very much the case for Mark Driscoll. It was the case for Jerry Falwell Sr. You can see this over and over again in organizations and churches. And once I understood that, then I think we have to kind of rethink our understanding of evangelical politics today, that they aren't maybe driven to embrace somebody like Donald Trump out of um, desperation, but that that really fits in with their embrace of a very us versus them mentality and, and a, a real um, uh, militancy that, that is at the heart of their tradition. Oh, exactly. 
Wow. Boy, exactly right. Um, yeah, I think, you know, this is, again, why, you know, I, I, I sort of saw this coming a few years ago. This, back, back under Obama, you know, um, I think was the beginning, when I started to see the beginnings and, and, the, and the culture yeah. of largely white evangelical Christians. Yeah. Um, noticing that they were very upset about the fact that white evangelical culture, um, that they were losing dominance, losing control, you know, oh my gosh, there's a mosque uh, in my town now, or oh my, you know, the the teacher at the public school is gay who teaches my kid English or whatever. Um, You know, so they're slowly seeing their power structures, their, you know, white evangelical Christianity losing dominance and um and feeling very frustrated about that like well there's not nothing i can do about this like there's nothing from a uh, you know you really can't appeal to the constitution in a situation like that to rescue you and to let's restore you know my religion my culture my my whiteness and and then and then i thought you know what as as that continues and i believe it's just going to continue it's just mm-hmm. inevitable this is going to happen that these people who once had power who no longer who recognize they no longer have power and no longer have prominence anymore and dominance in the culture. What they do unfortunately have um, is a stockpile of weapons. And um, you know, that's kind of scary. And so it like the culture war could become something literally. And I, and I'm afraid that what I'm seeing now is the beginnings of something like that. And it's really frightening to me to think that the origins of it come from a, from the church. I mean, it's really coming from, white evangelical Christianity, largely. Yeah. So there's a, a long tradition of, of uh, relying on um, on weapons to kind of enforce righteousness or so that your side wins. And in the book, I look at just how critical Vietnam was as a backdrop for this um, view of Christian masculinity to kind of coalesce. And at that time, it was seen that you know war against communist aggression was necessary to protect Christian America. So this is very much linked up with Christian nationalism. And in the Cold yep. War context, it was seen that, I mean, you need an aggressive offense to defend Christian America. And that that means a military strike. Um, and so, so, I mean, that's just deep, deeply rooted in this history. And then you also have in, in writings on parenting and on raising children, a real emphasis on firearms and how you know you should absolutely let little boys play with guns. And then as soon as they're old enough, you give them their first BB gun and then you give them their first rifle and you train them up. And so like using weapons is is connected to kind of maturing manhood and authentic masculinity. And and this is just pervasive in the books on you know how to raise boys in Christian circles. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Now, listen, as a as a boy, <laughs> former boy who was raised uh, in white evangelical culture, um, that's absolutely right. And it and it took me a while to sort of come out of it and turn around and look back and recognize all the ways that I was from a very early age indoctrinated into this idea of exactly what you're talking about. Like, you know, growing up as a young boy, uh, all my I recognize now. Uh, I didn't think it was weird at the time, of course, because I was a kid. But looking back now, what I recognize is all of my heroes had a gun. Yeah. Um, you know, um, Matt Dillon, uh, James West, um, you know, heck, even Captain Kirk had a phaser. Like everyone had a gun. And the way they solved problems was, well, you know, they had a gun and they were a faster draw or they're a better shot. 
you know, than the bad guy. And um, and that's how you solve problems. Typically, the you know the the bad guy at the end of the episode uh, is vanquished by getting killed or shot by yeah. by the hero. Um, yeah. And you know what? Here, here, you know what? One of the first times I noticed it. This is going to sound weird, probably, but as a as a young kid, one of the first times I think I became aware of it um, was there was a there's an old TV show with George Papard called Banachek. And uh, it was just one of those TV, you know, kind of cop TV shows I was watching as a kid. So I was watching Star, I was watching Starsky and Hutch and Beretta and, um, you know, all these kind of SWAT and all these kind of shows where my, all again, all my heroes had guns. Mm -hmm. But there was this one show, um, I'm just showing my age because this was the 70s, um, called Banachek. And what was what stood out to me as a young boy, it really just blew my mind. Because he was a hero, he was a detective who did not carry a gun, and in mm. fact, very vocally, would not carry a gun. Like there's scenes in episodes where they will hand him a gun or drop a gun, and he'll just pick it up like a dead animal and lay it down, like he doesn't use guns. And yet, he was successful. He was a hero. He he solved crimes. He caught the bad guy, and he didn't do it using a weapon. And and it just that mm. was the first I think I noticed as a young man. Like, wait a second, you can do this, like. You can solve problems without guns, Interesting. but gun culture is something that you're right. We are indoctrinated as, as young men in very subtle ways. It's all through entertainment, mm-hmm. you know, TVs, movies, comics, anything. It's uh, weapons and guns are a big deal. And, and again, right. A passage, like you said, was my dad took me out shooting and, and, you know, I got to fire a gun when I was like 12 years old. And that was sort of like, well, now I'm, tr- I'm moving into a manhood. Yeah. And it really feeds into this whole idea. You're exactly right. Yeah. And, you know, writers on evangelical masculinity love heroes, right? They, they have this kind of hero thing. And they already in the early 1980s, they're lamenting an anti-hero syndrome that has taken hold of American culture because of feminism and liberalism and, you know, all of these bad things. And so they want to uh, kind of celebrate heroes. And then, and then the question is, you know, who do they look to uh, for their heroes? And, and it's this kind of militant masculinity, this, um, this real toughness. And that actually unites conservative evangelicals with um, secular conservatives to a large extent. And so, you know, they'll look to Barry Goldwater and then to Ronald Reagan and then later to Oliver North. And this kind of rough and tough ends will justify the means masculinity. Um, th- then you see um, also perpetuated through talk radio and conservative media, this militant ideal of a kind of heroic masculinity uh, and always white masculinity, by the way, uh, right. it's going to wield violence. Uh, that that does unite conservative evangelicals with secular conservatives in a way that I, I think we see right now on the political landscape with regard to uh, support for Trump. Yeah, you're exactly right. There's a, there's a meme, and I'm going to paraphrase it and butcher it, but it's something along the lines of, you know, that we need to train our children to see heroes not as the ones who wage war, but as the ones who end war and bring peace. Like, if we could yeah. do that, that would be a wonderful shift. Um, to, you know, to, to help young people um, move away from this and see that, wow, the real heroes are the ones who, who avoid wars, who prevent wars, who bring peace, who, you know, who don't, uh, they're not grabbing the gun and running out there to, to kill the bad guys. Because this mentality, again, I, to me, it does fly in the face of, of a Jesus-centric, if we're going to call it Christianity, to me, Christianity should mean Christ-like. Yeah. If we're going to have a Jesus-centered 
you know, call me crazy, a Jesus-centered uh, theology, it should be one where uh, where we can do that, where we can see that, you know, Jesus isn't, he, Jesus is the one who is disarming Peter. Jesus is the one who's saying to turn the other cheek, to love your enemy, to overcome evil with good, to bless those who curse you. Um, and that, you know, that that counterintuitive so kind of subversive way is really the better way. And, and we don't believe it because we don't um, look into it, but there's all kinds of research about the fact that nonviolent, uh, organized nonviolent reaction to violence actually works. It, it really does work. Um, but thing is, most of us have never tried it and we don't really even understand it. Exactly. Yeah. And that's just not a theme that you will find in this literature at all, right? It's, it's, you know, you have to stand up and fight. You have to, because what's at stake, you know, God's truth is at stake. Uh, Christian America is at stake. Uh, your family, your children are at stake. And so the, the proper response then is, is to hit first. Right now. And again, I don't know if you get into this in your book, but, um, what I like your point, you know, that, yeah, you know, you, when you, when you identify an enemy, you need a battle to fight, right? So you, you identified some enemies to either your, the enemies of freedom. Typically, this is what it is, right? It's not the enemies of really your faith. It's the enemies, enemies of freedom and the second amendment or whatever, yeah. but, um, or really white masculinity and white culture. Um, but at any rate, so you see these enemies and you've identified them. And now then the only thing is, well, now you have to fight, but, Again, what I, what I often get into conversations with Christians about when I'm trying to help them make this shift in their paradigm, you know, when I say nonviolent resistance, I don't mean do nothing. It's not that we just sit and float and nothing and we do nothing about injustice. Certainly, we we should do things when we see injustice. It doesn't mean we, you know, beat people up. It doesn't mean we, you know, go cock the shotgun or anything. But there are things we can do. So we're being active. We are doing things. We are quote unquote, fighting, if you will, but, uh, but with the different tactics. And so uh, I think helping people understand that there's, you have more options than just um, kill someone, um, or, you know, destroy someone, or do nothing. Like there is a middle road, there is a middle ground where you actually can do something that is even more effective Right. than sort of the violent response. Right. And, and even if we if we extrapolate to the national level here, so in terms of national defense, uh, yeah. what was really interesting to me was, again, when my attention was first drawn to this, the connections between evangelical gender ideals and um, manhood in particular in foreign policy, so during the Iraq war, um, what I, I found soon was this, um, that many of the writers who were most prominent uh, writing on on this militant Christian manhood and organizations that were supporting um, this kind of gender difference framework, like focus on the family, uh, were also those who are most strongly promoting um, uh, kind of Islamophobia. And yes. uh, this, this, uh, and what they were doing is they were supporting these ex-Muslim terrorists, these speakers who claimed to be former terrorists. And they would divulge all the, you know, horrible secrets about Islam and how much Muslims wanted to destroy Christians and destroy America. And they, they would testify to their own violence that they perpetrated on behalf of Islam. Uh, well, it turns out all these guys were frauds. And, um, and yet they continued to be promoted across the evangelical world long after their stories were 
utterly discredited. And there were several of these guys and they were promoted by Focus on the Family. They were promoted by um, like Paige Patterson and you know, Liberty University. And I mean, these were, this was a big deal and very influential in, again, provoking fear among uh, American Christians uh, against, against Muslims. And then when you look at what kind of foreign policy this um, promoted and perpetuated, you know, this militant foreign policy and endless wars in the Middle East, did that actually make America safer or not? And I think it's highly debatable that it did. Right. No, you're exactly right. Now, it's funny you brought that up because like I, I've started, um, my wife and I work with Peace Catalyst International, which is a Christian organization that works to bring Christians and Muslims together. And that's one of the key things that we've identified is uh, especially again, if you are starting off as someone who self-identifies as a Christian, so your goal then I would hope would be, you know, let's let's have a Christ-like um, reaction to things. So when you look at Islam, here's what here's what most Christians are unaware of is that um, Christians and Muslims have a lot in common, even more than 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 with Jewish people, um, and that the the main thing that is that Muslims and uh, Christians have in common is a common love of Jesus. Jesus is in the Quran. Um, and so if you will sit, so in other words, if you will sit down with a Muslim as a Christian and you focus on what you have in common, that, um, that, that by, by having a conversation that begins there, like not to convince each other who's right or who's wrong, because that now, now you're in, you're heading down the wrong path. But if you're sitting down across a table with a Muslim as a Christian and you start focusing on what you have in common, which is Jesus, that these conversations lead to, uh, friendship. Um, you know, uh, collaboration, they lead to peace. Like it's a path that leads to peace. But if you don't do that, if you decide, well, let's, let's instead, let's argue and decide who's right, who's wrong, who's more violent than the other, which by the way, if you, if you play that game, Christians lose because the Bible is much more violent than the Quran is. Christianity historically has been much more violent than, than Islam has been. But at any rate, you know, like, but if you decide to take this other path of argumentation and division, well, we know what that leads to, right? It leads to disagreement, and then it leads to, uh, you know, conflict, and leads to violence, and leads to war. So, if we are going to choose a path to peace, uh, the path to peace, peace is to come together and look at what we have in common, rather than to point out what we, you know, the differences that we have. And so, I'm always urging Christians to do that, especially when it comes to Muslims. But if you don't do that, then, like you said, you're going to end up in this place where you create a foreign policy. You create even just a personal policy that leads to conflict, and then you're never going to reach any place of peace. Yeah, and I think so. I'm a Christian myself, and uh, it, it, to me, it seems the most revolutionary teachings of the gospel are you know to love your neighbor as yourself and to love your enemies, and yes. and that you know that's really the countercultural uh, you know heart of of Christianity as I understand it and and if you embrace this kind of militancy you you really give that up entirely and I, I think it does become a different faith and, and that's kind of what I'm referring to in my subtitle which which might seem a little harsh but you know how white evangelicals corrupted a faith and fractured a nation yeah. because I, I I'm making a bit of a normative claim there no you are I absolutely agree with you Kristen I totally agree with you um, I think we have a version of Christianity that Jesus and, and Paul would not have recognized. They'd be like, what? What have you, what have you created here? Yeah. Uh, like, it's like Jesus is a minor character 
um, in a religion that has his name on it. It's very weird. It's very strange. Or Jesus gets transformed, right? You know, like Driscoll did. Yeah, they transformed yeah. Jesus into this warrior Christ, charging on a horse with weapons and a tattoo on his leg, kind of thing. You know, so, so <laughs> Jesus, Jesus gets corrupted too. Yes, absolutely. He really does. That's very true. Um, so now I think we've had so much fun talking about this topic. I, I haven't asked you. Have you always been this way? Did you, you yourself go through any sort of a transformation in your theology, your understanding of uh, of who Jesus was and what Christianity was all about? So I don't feel like I've strongly diverged from where I started. And at the same time, you know, many people who grew up in a similar religious community as um, I did have taken it in a very different direction. And I think they would say I've diverged. So, um, you know, I grew up in a... Um, in a conservative Christian community, uh, a reformed community, a Dutch immigrant community. And so my faith wasn't exactly mainstream white evangelicalism. Although as I grew up, and particularly after I became a scholar of evangelicalism, I came to understand that my own tradition had very much been influenced primarily through popular culture. Um, yes. by this white evangelicalism. So focus on the family radio, right? James Dobson coming into everybody's living rooms every afternoon. Um, the Christian bookstore was the only bookstore in my small town. Um, you know, shelves filled with this kind of popular evangelical literature. And so although I I, I, I never identified as a as an evangelical, I can see how it very much shaped my my religious formation. But I always had a foot in another world. And that was a kind of um, Dutch reformed uh, tradition. And from that, I drew a kind of social justice Christianity before social justice became a bad word around here. Um, right. And so so I still see what I'm doing very much in that tradition. Some of my formative professors, I went to a Christian college, uh, were also Dutch and Canadian. And so I think that I got a different presentation of um, you know Christianity and, and certainly not Christian nationalism. And I also um, spent a year in Germany, and that was very influential to me um, and understanding kind of um, the history of 20th century Germany and German Christianity. And I think that's something that I've taken with me um, as I then look at American Christianity. Yeah, absolutely. Good stuff. Well, Kristen, this has been amazing. So if people want to know more about you, uh, where would they find you? Or do you have anything coming up that you want to uh, let people know about? Uh, how can people you know, follow you and learn more about you? Sure. I um, I have a website, kristindumay.com. That's K-R-I-S-T-I-N-D-U-M-E-Z. Uh, and I put all of my writings up there, or at least most of them. Uh, I'm also on Twitter, at K-K-Dumay, D-U-M-E-Z. So it's like Dumez. And I have a Facebook author page. And I'm very active on social media and uh, have a lot of fun there. So uh, yeah, that's where you can find me. All right, Kristen, thank you so much. This has been amazing. I encourage everyone to go out and get both of your books. Thank you for the work you're doing. Um, keep at it. Are you working on anything new, any new books or projects uh, coming up? I'm just starting a new project, but not quite ready to announce that. But it's okay. kind of a spinoff of Jesus and John Wayne, and it'll be fun. Okay, awesome. Looking forward to it. Thanks a lot, Kristen. Thank you. Wow, thank you so much, Kristen Tomei. Uh That was awesome. And um, I don't know what you guys were doing. I mean. Well, Keith, it would be nice if you let us know when the interviews are. I don't know why you do this on your own or what's going on here. You're in a silo. The rest of us aren't on board. Look, that's not what happened. You guys know what happened. Like this was not, 
I did not go rogue on this one. Uh, I think I was just, I was the only guy who was available, unfortunately. But I think what we should be saying is thank you, Keith. Well, that's what I was looking for. For the amazing interview, Kristen Dumais. Well, thank you, Kristen, really. I mean, I love Kristen. Uh, I've gotten to know her since that interview, and she's awesome. And I really love her. I love her book. Um, I love just, I guess I'm grateful, too, because she has written a book about something that has bugged me for a long time, sort of this whole, like, um, white Christian evangelical male uh, Christ, you know, masculine Christianity that sort of redefines Jesus as William Wallace and uh, kind of drives me nuts. So thank you, Kristen. Yeah, I think I may actually buy that. Oh, yeah. Good stuff. All I can think of is that John Wayne movie where he's the pastor that packs and it takes place in Paradise, California. What? Wait, it does? I didn't know yeah. that. There's a movie with John Wayne as It's the a pastor? John Wayne movie. Yeah. Well, just not so a very I, good one, I don't think. But yeah. Just so everyone knows, I went to school in Paradise, California. I went to high school there. I didn't know that. He, the, he, he was in a movie that was based on that show? Or uh, like set in Yeah, in it's all paradise? fictional. It's just set there. Yeah. Set in some right. kind of fictional paradise. I don't think it was filmed there or anything. Oh, okay. I had no idea. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, interesting. I did not know that. Yeah, I know. By the way, if any of our listeners happen to know the name of that movie, be sure to call the hotline with the answer and you'll win something. A copy of the movie. <laughs> Of the toxic toxic Jesus John Wayne movie. There you go. No, I I think we could probably set them up with something from Kristen, maybe. Yeah, or I was going to give away all of Matt's books. I I give them away for free anyway. They're like 99 cents on Kindle, so fuck off, man. Oh, all right. (laughs) Right wing Jesus, he's coming back, and this time he's not crucifying around. (laughs) Jeez. Damn, that is blasphemous. Oh, that was so good! I love that. Oh man, so so Keith is is today. You're on the uh, you're on you're at the pulpit today, right? I think I'm we're gonna uh, we're gonna we're gonna get into the topic. We're gonna talk about reconstruction, and we're gonna hear what you have to say. Is that right? I think so. We'll be here for a couple hours. <laughs> yes. Oh, man, Joy, oh. <laughs> hey, Barrett. Nice to see you again. <laughs> oh, actually, yeah, you will be, but the, fortunately for the listeners, our producer will cut down my three and a half hour rant oh. into a short, uh, you know, forty-eight minute uh, episode. Oh, so, yeah. Thank, thank God. Thank God. <laughs> yeah, but the rest of you guys better strap in and put on your um, your adult diapers. <laughs> So, yeah, um, you know, we're doing this uh, this series on Reconstruction, which is really, by the way, I'm so glad we're doing this. Uh, I personally see that Reconstruction, I really feel like it's something so important. And um, so about a year ago, um, I was noticing this. I was really feeling pretty strongly like, I, I guess it was sort of a re- self-realization, like everything I personally have been doing is so focused on deconstruction, you know, my blogs, my books, uh, this podcast. And that's good. I mean, I think it's definitely great. And we've all heard the feedback of how all this emphasis on deconstruction has helped people. So that's great. But what I was realizing was like there was that I could find there was really nothing intentionally specifically about reconstruction. And so uh, because of that, again, about a year ago, I started this 90 day online course called Square One. And the whole point of the course is to, you know, take about 15 people at a time through a one week at a time. So we just kind of go through it together. I have like weekly lectures that I pre-recorded on different topics. And then there's some homework for them to do during the week. And then at the end of the week, we have a uh, kind of a, a private Zoom conversation about an hour long Zoom call. And we just kind of process it together as a group and we go through it step by step. So we begin 
kind of like the first half of it is really dealing with all the different deconstruction stuff. And then we, about halfway through, we transition into focusing specifically on reconstruction. And I'm on, what am I? I think we've done it now five times. We're on the fifth uh, time through now with the, the fifth group of people. And it's amazing. And it's just been so beautiful to see people really go through it and get, you know, healed and set free and be given the tools and things to kind of move forward in their reconstruction process. So are you saying that uh, they are all set free? Uh, wow. That's a one way to put it. They, <laughs> they are all set free. Yes. Um, Sorry, I couldn't help myself. <laughs> well, listen, you you had you had me when you said you you were giving them the tool, the tools, the tool. oh, the tools, tools. tools. Okay, yes, the tool. Uh, well, you say you're giving them the tool. I was like, I'm, I'm all in. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, um, you know what I what I try to do, um, and again, so the the point of this series we're doing is because each of us kind of approach reconstruction differently, which is fascinating. Uh, you know, can't assume we are all on the same page, and so like. The way that I have approached uh, specifically the reconstruction part of it is that we deal with, uh, well, the, one of the first things we, we talk about that we deal with is forgiveness. And, um, and the reason why is that anyone who's gone through deconstruction, even a little bit, uh, typically you have been hurt by someone in your church, whether that's a pastor, maybe it's a family member, maybe you've lost some friendships. Uh, you might have been kicked out of your church, or you may have just personally felt so uncomfortable at your church that you couldn't just continue to be a part of it anymore. And so it, one way or the other, you no longer are, are involved in, the, in that church anymore. Um, and so if you've gone through that at any point, there's a good chance someone has hurt you, uh, accused you of something falsely, uh, questioned your motives and your character because you have doubted this particular belief system. And so we deal with that really, um, we deal with forgiveness, but again, understanding forgiveness is not, we don't set people, we don't tell people, well, what you did was fine because it's not fine. It sucks. You shouldn't have done it. It was bad. We're not saying it's, it's good or that, you know, we're going to just say Ali Ali oxen free, but it's focusing on forgiveness as a, it's a specific thing that we have to process so that we can move beyond where we're at. Like we have to, you know, in other words, the wounds have to heal if we're going to really experience the goodness and the freedom of reconstruction. So that's one of the first things we deal with, which can be, you know, that that's kind of a pretty deep personal thing that we, and each person has sort of a different thing they have to deal with there. So do you guys want to just go through the different steps? Cause there's, there's specific steps that we, we walk through in the course. Yeah. Tell us, the, tell us the rest. I think it'd be good to hear, like kind of hear the six steps and then let us. Yeah. Uh, try that on. There you go. Okay, let me do that, and then you guys tell me what you think. Because forgiveness could take like you know a year. Oh yeah, and it's again to focus on that, right? Long, so, longer, longer, yeah. right? <laughs> exactly. And again, even though we're spending, even though the course is ninety days, and we spend one week on forgiveness, and there's weekly, you know, there's daily homework and stuff. But um, we we know we're not. It's not like okay, we're done with that. Let's move on. Like right? <laughs> what we're really doing is just identifying that we need forgiveness. And we get we get some handles for these are some steps we can take to the goal is really just becoming a more forgiving person. That's what we want to become. It's really for us. It's that we need to become we we have identified that we want to become forgiving people. And uh, and so basically it will be a probably a longer term path to uh, get to the place where forgiveness is something that we're better at. 
And uh, anyway, that's the goal. But anyway, that's the first thing. Is what happens if you want to be scorched earth? I'm sorry. What's I mean, we're, we're, what happens when you want to be scorched earth, when you don't want to forgive? Well, I mean, obviously I can't make anybody do it. You know, I can just give them some really good reasons. And there's all kinds of uh, research that's been done about how um, unforgiveness. And by the way, this is totally secular psychological studies that have been done, like um, University, UCLA and, and you know, all, all these different places have done these studies about how unforgiveness in people is a, is a cause of uh, mental illness, um, you know, heart disease. I mean, in other words, unforgiveness literally will kill you. So even if you don't feel like it at the moment, I can understand that. It's raw, you're hurt, you don't want to forgive, but you need to at least understand that if you don't at some point reach a place that you're willing to forgive, um, go ahead and order your tombstone. Because at some point it's going to kill you. You have to recognize that it's not healthy. Like we have to, we have to, right? And so, well, and one thing I emphasize too is that, you know, forgiveness for me anyway is only possible when there's really good boundaries in place. Yes. So if I, if I'm in a place where I want to forgive, but I'm letting people continue to harm me. Yeah. It's not possible. Right. So it's not possible. We can only do it with a little distance. Right. Absolutely. You got to get the boot off your throat. Yeah. We definitely talk about that as well in the group because again, forgiveness is not saying, oh, I forgive you. Therefore I'm going to remain in this toxic relationship and let you continue to abuse me. You can draw boundaries and you need to draw boundaries for your own health and safety. Um, so that is a separate thing. We need to recognize that forgiveness doesn't mean I'm going to just stay here and let you, you know, crap all over me. Um, right. So that's important. Uh, and, thank- and by the way, folks, that that's, that's not where I am. I'm just asking for a friend. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, serious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, and like wanting the scorched earth policy, there's nothing, it, I think it's actually really healthy to acknowledge that. Oh yeah. Course, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a step t- on the road to forgiveness. Yeah. It, it, being honest with your own emotions is really important. Yes. Yeah. So, well, that's step one. Yeah. What's step two? That's the first thing we, we deal with then, um, or at least identify. So I'm going to run through these others fairly quickly and then we can talk about them afterwards. Uh, so the second thing is my favorite thing, which is rewiring our brains because we literally have the ability. And again, this is based on studies, secular psychological things that have been done, studies of the human brain that our brains have a plasticity and we really can rewire our brains and that we need to do that. Uh, So we walk through that for a week. That's an amazing process, uh, learning how to do that. The third step is detoxing from our detox. And uh, basically, if we don't do this, we end up in a loop where all we do is constantly complain about the horrible things that we, uh, the horrible theology that we used to practice or the horrible church that we left and how bad they are. And we, we just constantly spend all of our time focused on that horrible, horrible thing or the horrible, horrible theology. And we don't ever actually move on from there again to experience the good theology or the better thing that we have discovered. And we have to let go of that negative thing to move on to the positive thing. Um, The next one is practical grace. Um, That's a little bit more nuanced, but practical grace in general is basically learning to practice grace for yourself because that's a part of it. That's a component of the reconstruction process as well. Um, having grace for yourself and as well as for other people. And it's, that involves a little bit of putting yourselves in the shoes of other people and, you know, like trying to, okay, imagine empathy. What, yes, exactly. Practicing some empathy in that, in that sense as well. Um, then we talk about developing new daily practices because again, it, at, the further down the road you go in deconstruction, well, I don't go to that men's Bible study anymore. I don't go to that women's group anymore. I don't go to that uh, Sunday morning class anymore. 
uh, I don't attend this church anymore. And so there's all kinds of things now that you don't do anymore. And maybe that's a great thing. It's a better thing for you spiritually. It's healthy for you. But if all we do is not do something and we don't replace it with something that is feeding us spiritually, that's not helpful. So uh, what I do that week is help them basically identify for themselves. I don't tell them anything. I'm, I give them options and each person has to decide for themselves. I, I encourage them to try different things. But then, you know, once they've tried something, they can say, hey, I really like this. I'm going to incorporate this practice. I really don't like this and I'll never do that again. But at some point, you need to we need to find the things that genuinely in other words, and you get to decide what this is. This is what I'm excited about. You now get, are in charge of your own spiritual growth and development. We're not going to offload this to Pastor Bob or or some other theology or, or you know denomination or something like that. Like, no, you you personally get to decide what is it that really does feed me spiritually and that helps me to grow spiritually, that helps me to be aware of my connection to the divine. And I'm going to do those things. And the more and I recognize that by doing them, they really do help me. Uh, develop my spiritual uh, growth and my spiritual health, right? Maturity. And then the final thing is community. Because again, I really believe strongly none of us uh, is designed. And again, this is based on research as well, psychology. You know, um, we need community. We need connection with other people. We just do. And, um, and of course, again, through deconstruction, you lose a lot of those connections that you had previously. So it's important to develop new community, new connections, um, and maybe change some of the rules of engagement there so that the next community, the new communities and connections that we build aren't on the same basis as the previous ones we had uh, that were based on different rules. Yeah. So something that that tends to be a pet peeve of mine uh, that bothers me personally is people who talk about deconstruction and reconstruction as if it is like a do this and then this. So deconstruct and then reconstruct. They talk about it linearly. Yeah. And what you're not saying is that it's a linear thing. You you do emphasize, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the deconstruction reconstruction process is almost like the grief cycle. You kind of <laughs> hop back and forth. Like yeah. you're not just in you're not just in denial and then in anger and then this and that, right? So you're mm-hmm. kind of you're kind of all over the place during this whole process, right? Yeah. So thank you. That's great. Good point. And we even actually do uh, I actually, one of the lectures, I even use that graph of deconstruction, uh, or it's not deconstruction, but it's it's the one for grief, basically, right? Processing through things. And we sure. do, we look at that and we do use it as a way of identifying, just sort of like, put your finger on the map and say, I think right now I'm here, right? But again, we we have a discussion around what you just said, which is that it is not a sequential process. It's, I mean, I know that the graph is sequential, but but right. your experience is not. You're going to, today I'm here, but tomorrow I'm back over there. And then the next day I'm over here. And so there's a lot of back and forth, but also at the same time, specifically, uh, it's not as if, well, step one, deconstruct everything. And then once you're finished with that, now you can reconstruct. I mean, it's, these are sort of parallel lines. You will deconstruct as you reconstruct and you will will always deconstruct. And in fact, the things that you reconstruct um, a few years from now, you might find yourself deconstructing those things too. Yeah, I, I think that what 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 you're what you're doing is taking it away from an organizational approach and making it organic. Mm. It, it's something that that should happen natural, it, it, and and it's and it's not one size fit all. It's not a cookie cutter approach. It's it's something that basically your mileage may vary exactly. to everybody that that's involved. Yes, exactly. So I, I go out of my way <clears throat> to uh, two things. One is I right off the bat I tell them I'm not your guru. 
don't do anything because Keith said to do it. Like, don't make me now your your guiding light. That's I'm not. I want you to be your own. I want to help you learn how to trust yourself that you really can know what is right and what is good and you can you can figure it out for yourself. And all I'm doing uh, is sort of laying out a buffet for you to pick from. And uh, I'm giving you, again, lots of options, lots of possibilities. But in the end, you either decide to do it or you don't. You either decide, well, I'm going to do this or you don't. And again, it's up to you to decide what that path looks like for you and what's best for you. Yeah, I love the ownership that um, you're encouraging people to take in their own, you know, in their own spiritual evolution. And because it's so essential, if, if some authority is telling us how to do it, uh, we'll never, it'll never really truly be ours. Right. And so Keith, I'm kind of curious, just in your own story, like how, how long have you been in this process yourself? Oh yeah, probably more than 15 years. If I go, I think I can go, I think I can put my finger on it when it first, my first major deconstruction moment was probably about 15 years ago or so, a little more than that, maybe 15, 16 years ago. I was on staff at a church and um, I'm trying to remember which one came first because there were two things that came back to back, but I think the first one was um the the biggest one, the biggest epiphany was the idea that the gospel wasn't about saying a prayer to go to heaven when you die. And that blew my mind because I genuinely thought that that was what it was. <laughs> I had spent uh, many years as a licensed ordained minister teaching and preaching exactly that. <clears throat> and so when someone suggested that, well, no, that's not what it is at all. Uh, it was like, oh my gosh, hold on. I need to stop and reassess everything. Cool. And I'm curious what now, so that's, you know, many, many moon ago. And I'm curious now I, I, what's, what might be happening for you when you said, you know, something we deconstructed a few years ago, we may be deconstructing later in the future. We may be deconstructing now something that we reconstructed. We may now be in the process of deconstructing. And I've, I've certainly found that to be true um, in my process. I'm curious if there's just anything that's, that's on your mind, on your heart currently that you're deconstructing. That was something you reconstructed on five years ago, two years ago. Oh, that's a great question. Well, let me just say this. I, I can't think of the, anything really specific at the moment that, that jumps out as an example, but, uh, but in principle, let's just say, um, I think the problem, like the re- one of the reasons why I think deconstruction hurts so much is because we, many of us have years and years and years of reinforced uh, belief in a certain doctrine, right? Whatever that is. It could be the Bible's inerrancy or hell or penal substitutionary atonement or whatever, whatever it happens to be. And so it, when it, it's like hitting this piece of hard concrete with a sledgehammer. It's really painful. It's really destructive. It's, it's not a pleasant experience, right? And so this is why I encourage people when they re, when they deconstruct a belief, now they've got a new belief. What they believe is better and it's more Christ-like or whatever. Good for you. That's great. But the problem is, if you let that cement harden, well, guess what? <laughs> you're running the risk that down the road, something's going to come and question that new belief, and you're going to have to go through that entire painful, you know, sledgehammer concrete process again. So that's why I encourage us to um, to hold loosely to the things we we think we believe. To, to be, yes, to yes, to be comfortable. You're with reading mystery. my mind, man. Yeah, because you have to. You have to be comfortable with mystery. You have to be able to say, "I think I'm right." But listen, I've been wrong before, right? I mean, I don't, the things I believe now, I didn't believe five years ago. Things I believe uh, five years yep. ago, five years ago, I didn't believe 10 years ago, right? So uh, over, and, and probably in the future, things I believe now, I'm going to 
I'm going to, those things are also going to be changed or, or challenged. And so I have to, it's just for my own self-preservation, right? I, it makes sense for me to hold loosely to the things and to be able to say, I think, or even I don't know. Um, and I, so that's one of the things I encourage people to do in the course is to, uh, to not become, because we can become just as dogmatic about our yeah, new beliefs. Don't get galvanized. What was that? Don't get galvanized. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. So, you know, like, for example, like uh, I've had so many people I've talked to in the square one course, they, they, they like, yep, this is exactly what I've done. And t- let's take hell as an example, right? So you believed hell for the longest time. Maybe you even taught it and preached it and all that stuff. Well, then all of a sudden you, you change your belief and you're like, oh my gosh, I don't even believe this anymore. And now you embrace annihilation or universal reconciliation. And you become just uh, as big an asshole telling people how wrong they are and stupid they are to believe the, the other thing and how right you are to believe this, what you believe right now. Well, what good is that? You've, so maybe you've, you have changed your belief, but you're still a fundamentalist about it. You're still a jerk about it. Like, that's not healthy. That's not a good thing. Like, we, uh, my, again, I quote him all the time, my friend, Josh Lawson. I think he's even been on the podcast once. Uh, but Josh Lawson's quote, he says, you know, the funny thing about my beliefs is no matter how many times they change, I'm always right. And uh, that is true. That's a funny, that's an interesting phenomenon that, uh, hey, no matter how many times I change my beliefs, I'm right every time. But it's the, the flip side of that coin is also true. I've been wrong before. I'm probably wrong about a few things now, and I will be wrong again in the future. Therefore, some humility would go a long way <laughs> to like recognizing I think I'm right, but listen, I can listen to other people. Uh, I don't need to prove that I'm right or they're wrong, especially if they believe something that I used to believe and I don't believe anymore. It's like, well, I used to believe the same thing and I don't anymore. And and just to like think selfishly about the whole thing, this sounds counterintuitive to like where I came from, where a lot of people came from, but there is so much freedom in a certain healthy agnosticism. Like, it's it's good for your soul to be like, yo, I do not know, and I don't care to know, and I'm cool with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, just from just from personal experience, like a lot of people, and this is some criticism I personally get is like, you're all about deconstructing and not reconstructing. It's like, no, let me just clarify part of my reconstruction personally, and we'll get to it next time. But just for me personally, it's like I have learned to be comfortable in the, the certain agnosticism about a lot of doctrines. And that, and, and that sounds like I haven't reconstructed anything, but that itself is part of my reconstruction. Yeah. No, I think that's good. That's a good thing. Um, I, I think, um, you know, obviously we believe whatever we believe at the moment because we think we're right. I mean, I, if I thought I was wrong, I wouldn't believe it. I believe something else. Um, so yeah, I think I'm right. You know, if someone questions me about, Something that, you know, I'll, I'll say, well, here's here's why I believe this now and here's how I got here. Um, and I might even be willing to, like, really defend it. Like, no, I mean, and we can we can argue a little bit, let's say, on, you know, the Greek of that, of that is the, not that, it's this and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, so, of course, there's reasons why I think what I think. And, um, but it's just not getting it, not making it so personal. Like, it doesn't, like, I, I, you say this all the time, Matt, like, we're not our beliefs. Yeah, that's that's hard for people to initially grasp, but um, in one in one way we are our beliefs, and that it helps identify us. But like at the core of who we are, we're not. We yeah, because again, my our beliefs. I mean, I, I think you could, you we all can say this. Like my beliefs have changed over time. I mean, I, I'm still Keith, 
I've always been Keith and I'll always be Keith. And so my beliefs will shift and change. And again, not depending on the belief, the belief can impact some of my behaviors. But even then, I'm still, my identity shouldn't be, I would say, wrapped up in, um, you know, my theology uh, or, or a particular brand of theology. Let's put it that way. Well, and I think what I'm hearing, Keith, and tell me if this is incorrect, is that um, the your your reconstruction isn't focused so much on a belief because that's always a moving target yeah. and it can always, always, always be unraveled. Yes. But on the process and on the experience. That's, yeah, that's really what I'm encouraging people to do. I am, and I am really focusing, I'm trying anyway, I'm encouraging, I should say. I'm encouraging people in the course as they're going through this to focus on more of an experience. Like I want people to have more of a spiritual experience. Um, I think that's much more valuable to people in the long run than beliefs system. Like, you know what I'm saying? I'm way, I'm, I'm way bigger on orthopraxy than orthodoxy. Um, mm. I mean, to that, to that point, I mean, uh, I would rather have an atheist who loves people and is kind and compassionate than someone that believes everything I believe, but they're a raging, you know, dick. Like what's, what's better? <laughs> well, I would rather that they be a kind, loving person. That's better in the long run. Right. Yeah. And, a, and a nod to our uh, question, our hotline question too, around atheists, right? Like I've, I've definitely met atheists who have an agenda. They have a belief about like what all Christians are like or what all yeah. people are faith are like. Yes. That's unshakable and, and often incorrect. That often doesn't reflect, you know, my, my own personal experience, although it reflects, um, you know, some of theirs Yes, um, as well. Right. And I, you know, I run into the same thing too around Christians as they're deconstructing. And I totally get it, that there's a belief that um, every church must be toxic and abusive. Yeah, exactly. Right. Whereas, yeah. uh, you know, if we can open up those beliefs, maybe we can find, you know, supportive communities. Yeah. That look, you know, look a hundred different ways and have to look like church, but yeah. And yeah, and so on, especially on that topic of community, um, it doesn't have to be a church. Uh, it can really just be a group of people who genuinely they love you for who you are. They care about your well being. They're they're um, willing to tell you the truth about something. They're not going to try and manipulate you or control you. Um, one, one of my friends, Dan Naughty, has a great definition of like really the ideal community is the one in which the worst about you could be known. And you would be more loved in the telling and not less. I mean, that to me is more of an ideal community. And that can be people you hang out with at the bar. They can be the people, you know, at your, the, the parents of your, of your kid's soccer team. Uh, it could be a Bible study group. It could be a men's group or a women's group or whatever. It, it could be many things, but it doesn't, A, it doesn't have to be a church. Um, and, mm -hmm. and yes, to your point, Katie, um, I, I'm famously kind of not a big fan of most organized churches. So I'll just, that that's a known that's a known bias that I have, but but I will say I've been pleasantly surprised um, that there are a growing number of faith based communities churches that are going out of their way to be inclusive. They're going out of their way to embrace questions, to allow people to have doubts. And I think, by the way, if you're going to try and survive as a church in the future, if you want to be around in the next ten or twenty years, you had better become a church who's willing to do that, or, or people are just going to you're just going to watch people. You know, disappear. They're going to go out the back door. I, I think that the future, the future of community is going to look like this. It's going to be more like tour groups. Oh, you know that people people collectively engage on some tour, that some walkabout, some journey, yeah. 
in, instead of instead of being a community behind a fortress. That's typically what church has been is been built on this fortress model that basically we're in, you're not, and we're secure, you're not, we're protected, and you're not. But when when you when you take it from the standpoint of a community of of tourists, if you will, spiritual tourists, then you say, okay, yeah, we're all together. Our our strength is in our numbers, and because we're out in the open, we do have a bit more of vulnerability. Yeah, I like that. And so I'm I'm looking at it like that. So when I think of community, I'm thinking like the hop hop on hop off bus, but but in a more sustainable model. Yeah. Well, isn't that isn't that what you kind of did, Keith, with your uh, church in Orange County? Like you guys didn't meet as often as you fed the poor, right? Well, we did we did both. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah I, but I, but I mean, but I mean, like traditional churches, like maybe do like a community thing like once a month, but they meet all the time. But you guys like flipped it, right? Yeah, again, it was a little bit of both. Like we did we have weekly meetings, but we also you know on a regular basis we're over there at the motel or meeting or sometimes we'd meet in the morning with the, the the tent city the homeless that were right there around angel stadium because it was a couple of blocks from my house we'd hang out with them in the mornings and have coffee and donuts and stuff with them and just talk to them and hang out and then we'd go back to my house and you know have church at my house or we didn't go out to eat or whatever um so it was it was kind of a very fluid thing you know we kind of did both yeah well I, you know one of my I mean, I don't do it for this reason, but uh, once in a while there's um, pre-COVID protest or a demonstration or a rally or something like that where I felt like my presence was important and I'll show up in my uh, collared shirt and then someone will say, like, why are you here? I'm like, well, I feel like this is important to me, whatever the reason is. Okay, but like you're in a collar. Okay, yes, I am. I'm a a pastor or the clergy. But that just my my presence there kind of opens up the conversation of... um, their deconstruction, you know, whoever that person is, and that the the thing that we think has to look a certain way doesn't. Yeah, it can look a 100 different ways. Yeah, exactly. right. And so that's like part of that reconstruction is just reorienting what we think the box we think a community has to fit in. It actually doesn't. Right. And you know, let me just say this too, because you brought up the COVID thing. And then also the idea of it not always having to look a certain the way we expect it. Um, when I started the square one thing about a year ago, uh, I actually intentionally in my mind, I was very strongly against like uh, what I was doing. I was like, I'm not starting a community. I'm starting a course. It's a 90 day course. People come in 90 days. They come in and it went over goodbye. It's been great. Um, that, I mean, that was my mindset. But again, the more I did it, I kept doing it. And there was, we set up a private Facebook group for the people in the group. So, so they could kind of like uh, communicate with each other and we could share, you know, share things with each other. And so again, every time I did one of these, we added another 15 people to the group. And so the group kept growing and people have been through it together. And now, like I said, we are in our fifth round now. And my, my attitude about that community thing radically shifted because, you know, we were, again, here we are talking about the importance of community, um, but then COVID hit for one thing. And then it's like, well, oh yeah, I can't really find a physical community to hang out with anymore. Um, and it was suddenly like, well, you know what? So many people who are, who've gone through this, this course. And, and I bet people listening to us right now are this way too. Like you're deconstructing, but you don't know anybody in your zip code who is also deconstructing at the same time. And so you're very much isolated. You, you're very alone. And so again, the need for community is very, very strong. And for many people, what they're discovering is a community on Zoom or a community on Facebook. And so uh, these sort of virtual communities, um, whereas I you know, I, I'm, I used to say, well, 
that's not the ideal. The ideal is face-to-face, hanging out on the couches and stuff like that, whatever. Um, but I'm starting to change my, ma- my mind on that. I'm, I'm thinking more and more that, you know what, these, this community, the online community, the Zoom community, and, and the social media communities, I think can be just as healing and just as helpful uh, as the face-to-face communities. I mean, it sounds like you, you let something organic change your mind. Like your, yeah. your direct experience of this actually caused metanoia, right? It really did. Uh, really, the, the, the people changed my mind in the group because yeah, I just sat right. back and saw how much they genuinely cared about each other. They loved each other. They were like keep checking up on each other. You know, hey, how's your dog? And how your daughter was sick? How's she doing now? And I'm like, wow, I didn't intend for this to happen. But man, these people have really bonded. They've, they've really genuinely connected with each other. Um, and so yeah. actually because of that too, I was like, well, you know what? Then why don't we do a square two? So I put together a square two course and then, then we went through that. And I was like, they, everyone's like, we don't want to stop. This is great. We want to keep hanging out. We want to keep talking. We want to keep processing. So like we did a square three group, which is really just a, a weekly zoom call. We just get on the zoom call every week and just, hey, what do you want to talk about? And we just talk and it's been really, really awesome. So where, where do, uh, where do folks sign up? Because before we close, I want to make sure that people have an opportunity to uh, to connect and and if they're interested, like yeah. can people sign up now? Can they, is there like uh, a schedule that happens? Yeah. So uh, yeah, the next round is going to be starting February the eighth in twenty twenty one, and again, it runs every ninety days. Uh, so people can go to uh, the website for it is BK two SQ one. That's back to square one. So it's actually the letter B, the letter K, uh, the number two. Then the letter S, the letter Q, the number one dot com, bk2sq1.com. Um, and I'll be willing, I can, we'll find a way to put links or a discount, but I can put a link in the, uh, like in the Heresy After Hours group and in the Heretic Happy Hour Facebook group. Um, but I, I'm, I'm offering like a 65% discount uh, for anybody who wants to sign up uh, just to, you know, to try it out. I think it's something that I know it works. I've seen people really blessed by it. And, uh, you know, it's it's an option anyway out there. If people are interested in walking through something like this with a with a group of other people who are going through it just like they are. Cool, man. That's great. All that sounds good. Um, so let's let's continue this conversation, um, Katie. And I, Katie, will talk about the the Facebook group. So uh, we'll continue this conversation. I love what you're talking about. But uh, before we wrap it up here, just want to let everyone know we have a, a website. It's heretichappyhour.com, and on that website. We have a bookstore. So if you listen to any of the Heretics of the Week, we got as many other books as possible. We're selling it for, most of them are about 15% off from what you're going to find elsewhere. And uh, that helps the show. It helps your pocketbook. So head on over to heretichappyhour.com. We got a lot of cool stuff, including a new bookstore. So check it out. Cool. And after you buy the book and read that book, you can post about it in our free Facebook group called Heresy After Hours. As of this moment, there are 2,111 heretics, just like you, uh, all asking questions. And there's a lot of snark. There's a lot of support. There's a lot of fun that goes on in there. So come join that. And we do have a Patreon group that's exclusive for our patrons of the show where you get to talk to your four co-hosts exclusively. So we'd love to have you in there, too. Yeah, absolutely. And um, speaking of Patreon, if you love the Heretic Happy Hour podcast, and of course you do, you made it this far, uh, and you can't get enough, and who can, you need to get over to the patreon.com slash heretic happy hour page, because on the Patreon page is where you 
can unlock exclusive content. Uh, we do, uh, each of the four of us will take a week. I've been taking a week to record uh, exclusive video content for people at the $25 level and up. Um, but even as, if you sign up for as little as $2 uh, a month to support the, the podcast, you're going to unlock a lot of awesome stuff. Tons of content that's already up there that's been up there for the last, what, two and a half, three years. Um, just bonus content, bonus interviews, uh, bonus po- podcast footage, uh, and lots of fun stuff. So go over there and check it out. And by the way, if you already do support us on Patreon, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We appreciate it so, so much. And if you enjoy this podcast, please like and give a five-star review on iTunes for this podcast. And, and if you do that, you will likely avoid Keith Giles showing up on your doorstep with an offering basket in his hand. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Oh, I thought you were going to say, you know, you, you can, uh, you can make it through the, you know, we'll basically give you a, uh, an indulgence and go straight to heaven. And Keith can make it happen. Do you have that? Do you have that power? Do you have that power, Keith? With Derek's asshole card, you can do that. I can. That's right. Derek, we're gonna have to talk. We're gonna have to talk later. I'm gonna have to get uh, an official asshole card. We can arrange that. I ha- I do have an ironic purity card on my refrigerator. Oh, God bless you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>